The sermon was prepared by Reverend Braden, Reuben Bradenhoff, minister of the Free Reformed Church of Mount Missouri, Western Australia. And after the reading of the sermon, we will sing in response of hymn 44, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Beloved in Christ, shall we begin with a history lesson? Let's go to Europe and to the years leading up to World War I. In those days, there were a few nations that wanted to stay neutral. They wanted to because everyone was worried about the upcoming war. They were growing nervous that an aggressive Germany was looking for some reason to invade the countries around her. So hoping to avoid conflict, a few nations declared their neutrality. The Netherlands did this, as did Belgium and Spain and a few others. This meant they weren't loyal to Germany, but neither did they side with France or England. They hoped that if and when the war started, they would be able to ride it out in peace because they had not committed either way. How did it work out for them? For Belgium in particular, it failed miserably. They were right in the way of Germans, Germany's line of invasion into France and the Germans thought nothing of rolling through Belgium's territory with their army. In fact, it put Belgium in a difficult spot once the Germans started appearing at their borders. They were neutral, so were they even allowed to defend themselves? Would they be treated worse if they fought back? Or was it better to cooperate? In the end, Belgium's army was destroyed, thousands of citizens were killed, and they spent the next four years under German occupation. Which shows a principle that is very true. There is no middle ground. You can't remain neutral. Jesus said in Matthew 12, He who is not for me, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Verse 30. A grain, Christ says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Mark 6, 24. In this life, in our present conflict, which isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, there are only two sides to choose from. It's been like this for a long time, but not always. When God created the world, he saw everything that he made. It was very good. But already in Genesis 3, Satan was tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. There had been rebellion in heaven, and many thousands of angels turned against their creator. This means war. Two lords and masters now compete for glory and worship. Since that time, there has been continual war. The whole world is sharply divided between two kingdoms, between the prince of this world and the king of the universe. This is what we will consider in Lord's Day 48 and the second petition under the following theme. Living in a divided world, we pray your kingdom come. First, it has always been. Second, it came closer in Christ. And third, it will soon come in fullness. First, 
it has always been coming. When Jesus taught his prayer for the first time, he didn't give the disciples a handful of catechism lessons in order to explain it. He just said it and carries on. For most of the petitions, including the second, the kingdom petition, Jesus said nothing at all. And that's probably because the entire prayer had deep Old Testament roots. The disciples knew the themes and the truth of the scriptures, so they understood this prayer. What does the Old Testament say about the second petition? Out of all the ways that the law and the prophets speak about God, this is among the most frequent, that the Lord is king and rules a mighty kingdom. What Moses sings in Exodus 15, 18 is repeated again and again. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. God has always been the sovereign Lord, ruling and protecting his people, upholding and governing even the entire world. Or think of Isaiah's vision. In chapter 6, the prophet reports that he saw the Lord. And where was he? God was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Verse 1. The Lord was surrounded by a host of angels who were all singing out in praise of the Holy God. Of the Holy God. Isaiah claps in fear, crying out, Woe to me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. In the Old Testament, it's clear. The Lord is King. He has a position of great power and dominion. I encourage you to do a search this week of all the passages which speak about God's kingdom. There's a lot. But if we have to summarize those many dozens of texts, we could say this. First, God is an eternal king. The psalm says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And again, your dominion endures through all generations. That means there never was a time when God didn't reign over all. Even before he created anything, the Lord was sovereign. That fact alone is a comfort to us. Because when the devil begins his rebellion, he was going up against a kingdom that had been established forever. The devil might be called the ancient serpent, but the Lord God is so ancient that he is without beginning and without end. Age or longevity isn't a guarantee that something will be permanent, of course. But in the case of God's kingdom, it gives a rich assurance. This eternal kingdom will not quickly fail. It will never fail. The Old Testament teaches us that God's kingdom is eternal, and also it's universal. We are used to thinking of authority as having limits, and that's a good thing. It's good that our mayors can't decide things without the support of the city council. Or it's good that the prime minister needs his bill passed with the majority of the other MPs. But when it comes to God's kingdom, there is nothing in his creation that doesn't have to submit to him. Psalm 103 says it, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Verse 19. Over all. God rules the very elements, the sun and moon and stars. He rules over the highest heights and the deepest depths 
of creation. God the king exercises rule even over those who oppose him. The Old Testament says that God is Lord over all the other gods. God is Lord over his enemies. God is even sovereign over Satan and his hosts of demons. That's another rich truth for us. There are many attacks against God's kingdom, against his church, and against the truth of his word. We see Satan doing all he can to terrorize the believers. Even so, the Lord God remains supreme. Scripture says that God's enemies can only do what his hand and purpose have determined will be done. None of it takes place without the wise decree first being issued from God's heavenly throne. And thirdly, what is the aim of his dominion? Is it so that everyone will know what David calls the glorious majesty of God's kingdom? God wants to be hallowed and glorified as God. He wants to be praised through the triumphs of his kingdom. That day when all people will finally acknowledge him as king. That day when all our works shall praise you, O Lord. We're not there yet, but until that glorious day, the kingdom is advancing through the spread of God's rule in every place, in hearts, in the church, and in the world. So in every place, God is for life and against death. He is for love and against hatred. In every place, God is for hope and against despair. There is no neutral ground anywhere, but every square foot is being contested and claimed for God will be king over all. If we turn to the Old Testament for a moment, let's think about Israel's place as God's special kingdom and holy nation. We just said that God is king over all the universe, even Egypt and Rome and Babylon. But sitting on the throne of Israel was the Lord himself, and he allowed human representatives to rule in his place. The king would govern his people for him, protect him like he would, provide like he would, judge like he would. Some of these kings did the job pretty well, but many were quite bad and wicked kings on Israel's throne. Many corrupt judges and impoverished people and military losses. The worst of it all, wicked kings meant spiritual decay. Every wicked king gave Satan another foothold in the land. If there was a wicked king, then false religions would spread. Lawlessness would grow, and God would not be acknowledged. For either God will be Lord and King, or some other God will. For instance, think about the dark days of Ahab, when the people chose to worship idols. It all came to a head in the contest on Mount Carmel, that showdown between the Lord God and the god Baal. And this is what Elijah said to the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Abel, but if Babel is God, follow him. 1 Kings 18, verse 21. And you can't have it both ways. No one can have it both ways. Are you committed to God as your king and commander? Or do you give your allegiance to another? How long did you waver between two opinions? 
On that day, Mount Carmel, at Mount Carmel, God showed himself supreme. And the Israelites made their commitment. But that wasn't the end of the struggle. So the prophets keep pointing toward the day when the Lord would show his perfect rule once and for all. You could say that the constant prayer of the Old Testament, a prayer of restoration, a petition for God's eternal and universal and glorious kingdom to come. And it came closer in Christ. We come to the second point. It came closer in Christ. When Jesus first started preaching, what did he say his message was? What would you expect it was? Did he start going about on about love? Or maybe start preaching fire and brimstone? From day one, Jesus announced the kingdom. Mark 1 verse 15 summarizes the sermon that he came preaching. The time was fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. Look, we're, looks were deceiving, of course. Jesus might have had the credentials to be a king. He was born in David's line, born in Bethlehem, but he didn't look like much of a king. For instance, he was homeless. As a person, he was pretty average looking. Besides, as a teacher, he had a habit of saying things that made people think twice about following him. He said things like, let the dead bury their own dead and take up your cross and follow me. They hardly seemed kingly, but in some ways, that was the point. Think of Mark, verse four, or Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. One of the many parables that Jesus told about the kingdom. To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Verse 30. And Jesus contrasts the mustard seed, a very tiny seed, with the large and productive plant that comes from it. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. The seed was now the ministry of Jesus. This was a time of planting, a time of small beginnings. It didn't look like much, but later the harvest would come and endless blessings for all those who bowed to the king. Even, in the king, even if the kingdom seemed insignificant right now, its growth and how it spread were obvious to those with eyes to see. He spoke about it in Luke 10. Jesus had sent out 70 of his disciples to bring the message of the kingdom. When they returned to Jesus, they marveled at the power they had been given. Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. As the disciples toured around, they could command demons to leave those they were tormenting. By simply speaking in the name of Jesus, demons would flee. Amazing. And listen to what Jesus replies. He explains to the disciples what is going on. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's an, a puzzling statement. What did Jesus actually see? Was it something physical? A literal flash across the horizon? 
It probably describes an instant that Jesus had been given by the Father. Jesus knew that right now, during his ministry, Satan was losing ground and fast. The devil had lost his right to stand in God's throne room and accuse the Lord's people. And even now, he was being thrown out for good. Even now, there was a critical assault underway on the kingdom of darkness. This is why Jesus came, after all, to destroy the devil's works, and it was happening. It's no wonder the demons were dropping like flies. No wonder they were occupying pigs instead of people. Because the very commander of these demons was doomed. Sometimes the demons even said this when Jesus came close. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? One cried out in a synagogue. Did you come to destroy us? The demons all knew that their time was almost up, that a new age and kingdom was coming, and it was all in the name of Christ. I give you to the authority, said Jesus to his disciples, to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemies. Luke 10, verse 19. That is the great strength of Jesus, God's King. Those who believe in his name are enabled to resist the evil one. This is how John puts it in his first letter. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We've got to slow down a bit to appreciate the meaning. Satan is the one who is in the world. Whatever Jesus calls him, wherever Jesus calls him the prince of this world, and the world is where we all live, and it's a hostile place. Even now, there are powers rising themselves against God. There are conspiracies against his holy word. But the, there is good news for those who live by faith. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. No, Satan still roams the earth, tempting and lying and killing. He doesn't want us to share in God's kingdom and enjoy his grace. This is why we're taught to pray this kingdom petition. Destroy the works of the devil. But even as we pray, we know the devil's defeat is certain. For the decisive battle has been fought. Colossians 1 says to us that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we can trample on the serpent of temptation and tread on the scorpion of unbelief. Satan fears the name of Christ. He fears him more than anyone. The only way you can stand is when you go to Christ and you pray for his power and spirit. And that sets a decision before us, doesn't it? There is a need to take a side. Christ's kingdom comes with an invitation, a command, it, claim, it puts a claim on our hearts. You can't not decide. This decision is not to be fully devoted to Christ means a decision to reject him. Think again of Jesus' words. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Even in the unbelieving world, 
there is recognition that a person cannot be neutral. In politics and business and relationship, we can't sit on the fence, but you need to commit one way or the other. You can't dither or hesitate forever. And so you decide, knowing your choice has a consequence. What is not an opinion is saying that you won't, or what is not an option is saying that you won't be on either side. In this divided world, in this war of two kingdoms, think of what would happen if you tried to be neutral. Fearing neither side, not committing either way, you would let down your guard. You would fail to watch and pray. You would neglect the kind of spiritual fortification that you should be busy with. And then the enemy shows up at your border, and you have no idea what to do. He invades and captures you quickly. Neutrality simply will not work. We must pray and strive for God's kingdom to come. Surely you remember Jesus' words in Revelation, how he rebuked one of his churches. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelations 3, the verses 15 and 16. Jesus will not tolerate those who try to have it both ways. Beloved, let's realize that we've already been enlisted to be on God's side. By our baptism, God has already chosen each of us for himself. We don't enter life as a spectator, as neutral observers, but we enter on the side of God. This calls us to take up the life to which we have been set apart, to answer God's gracious call. Don't delay but believe in Christ wholeheartedly as Savior and serve him joyfully as King. A true citizen of the kingdom listens to his King and does his good will. This part of the Catechism lesson too. So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Submitting to God should be growing more evident in us day by day. Already, it should be clear which side we are standing on. We're not trying to find the middle ground where we have both a kingdom side and a world side in our life. That's impossible. We're either for Christ or against him. There is urgency to this matter, for his kingdom is soon going to come in all its fullness. We come to our third point. It soon will come in fullness. In the second petition, there is something unfinished. Our prayer is that the kingdom come, that it keeps on advancing. By his ministry, Christ brought God's kingdom very near, yet it's still in progress. He made a beginning, but it's still not full. And so we pray even today, your kingdom come. For God wants to restore his good creation so that it finally and fully resembles the kingdom that is truly is. He wants to purify this world with fire and to rid the stain of sin which runs so deep and will cause us so much brokenness. And God also has plans to punish his great enemy forever. Satan has already been cast down. 
Now all that remains is to throw him into the lake of burning sulfur, where he will be tormented forever and ever. Revelations 20.10. That is the second petition, fully answered. It is true that even in eternal it is true that even in eternity, the rebellion of the devil will not be undone. The fall into sin can never be revoked or changed. When Christ returns, there will be many who suffer condemnation forever. But listen to what the Spirit, Spirit says in the book of Revelation. On that day when Christ returns, it says, The kingdoms of the world will become like kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelations 11:15. The kingdoms of this world, which are now so opposed to God and his church, now so devoted to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. For one day everyone in the world will see how true the gospel is. Everyone will see how great Christ is, and every knee will bow before him. Everyone will see what Psalm 145 calls the glorious majesty of God's kingdom, a kingdom that rules over all. We don't see it just yet. Today the mustard seed is growing, but it's looking very small, even worthless. But we know that soon it will become a great tree. Everyone that fills the world and gives shelter to all who believe. So in this divided world, make it your constant prayer and make it your single-minded purpose. Your kingdom come. Amen.